Today I'll be sharing one of the most profound spiritual realizations I've had on my path thus far. This is a realization that took place over the past couple months or so, leading up to my trip recently to California, where I visited Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks. Throughout the talk today, I'll share some imagery from uh, the trip, some photos that I took. I want to discuss the significance of nature, of Mother Nature, as a spiritual teacher, as a catalyst for transformation that we can use similar to the way that we may use, uh, you know, sacred text or maybe the support of a spiritual teacher or a guru, maybe the support of plant medicine. We can also spend time in nature, communing with nature and use that as a, an incredible tool for spiritual transformation. Uh, perhaps the most powerful tool that we have available to us. And this is something that I've only recently really been able to tap into and understand, uh, despite spending a lot of time in nature throughout my life, um, you know, throughout my journey, I've always understood the significance of nature to some degree, but over the past little while, it's it's gone really deep and I'm sure it can go ever deeper. But I want to share a little bit about with this with you um, as I explore. So before we get into that, you can check out the description, a bunch of free stuff there. Got a course out called Grounded Spiritual Emergence and Integration, all about embodying your spiritual awakening. So let me go back a little bit. Past few months or so, um, earlier this year, as an aspir aspiring psychotherapist, I put myself in psychotherapy and connected with a really great psychotherapist with a very deep uh, and lengthy uh, practice rooted in mindfulness, it seems. And uh, when I say mindfulness, I'm spe speaking specifically about mindfulness meditation. And so I was inspired and encouraged to take up uh, a more serious meditation practice. Now, throughout my journey, I've had a, an on and off meditation practice. Admittedly, I would sit mostly when necessary uh, to manage intense suffering, intense emotional upheaval, especially the stuff that was coming up uh, during the uh, more difficult parts of my Kundalini awakening process. But when things stabilized for me emotionally, for the most part, um, you know, the meditation practice became um, um, something uh, less important. Um, and admittedly, I felt uh, complacent. You know, what do I need to meditate for? You know, I've, I've generally speaking, my emotional system is, is quite regulated. Or, uh, you know, what do I need to meditate for? I kind of live in a meditative state in an ongoing way uh, to some degree or another, which can, uh, can ebb and flow. But, you know, I, I got a little arrogant and a little complacent. Um, but of course, this is one of the benefits of therapy. You know, you get uh, some some very uh, honest, trustworthy support, and and uh, of course, I was encouraged to begin a uh, practice. And so, this meditation practice has, has been an uh, exciting journey, challenging. Uh, it hasn't been perfect per se, but I'm doing my best to commit to a regular daily practice. And so, alongside uh, this commitment to practice, comes. Uh, an approach to mindfulness. Uh, sitting in meditation just, just involves becoming aware of whatever's arising in the moment uh, on a very minute level. So not just the you know significant emotions that may arise. Admittedly, for the most part, I don't have many significant emotions lately in meditation. It can still happen from time to time. 
But in the mindfulness meditation, uh, we're invited to just be aware of this, the subtle sensations, the inhale, the exhale, tension, pressure, um, you know, maybe a little bit of itching, restlessness, boredom, uh, thinking may arise, images may arise in the mind. So I've just been sitting with this, uh, you know, the, the, the phenomena of life as a human being, sitting with it uh, in, in meditation. And um, in conjunction with this practice, which I'll, I'll explain a little bit about some of the benefits I've had, which have been quite profound, and it's actually, uh, you know, the basis for this realization I'm about to share about, which, of course, if you've seen the title of this, uh, this episode, it's, it's Kundalini as Impermanence, or Kundalini is Impermanence. And I know this might seem a little odd to speak about, but uh, I'll expand, of course. So in conjunction with this meditation practice, I've been, I've been reading some books on mindfulness, on meditation, reading some work of Jack Kornfield, I've been exploring the work of Joseph Goldstein, as well as the work of an incredible mindfulness teacher, Shinzen Young. And in particular, I've read his book recently called The Science of Enlightenment, how meditation works. Now, Shinzen is an absolutely incredible mindfulness teacher, one of the more influential teachers uh, here in the West. Uh, you know, maybe can be credited with, um, you know, the boom in mindfulness that we're seeing lately. And he's done a lot of great work. And this book, I really recommend it. It's uh, it's ten out of ten. Uh, incredible book for those uh, on the path, whether you're dealing with Kundalini or not. This book is really, really incredible. And so. Uh, I was reading it, and of course, Shinzen has spoken about Kundalini here and there, but uh, maybe you're familiar. When you look at the mindfulness people, they don't speak about Kundalini in the way that, you know, maybe I'm speaking about it here, or in the way that some of the more uh, Indian-based, yogi, uh, yogic system-based teachings are, you know, very upfront about this, you know, Kundalini Shakti. Whereas some of the more teachings that are rooted in, uh, in, in Buddhism don't speak about this force that we call Kundalini so openly. It's here and there, it's mentioned, but it's almost uh, in passing. Well, anyway, in the book, of course, Shinzen's writing about impermanence. And if you're familiar with, with Buddhism, you'll understand uh, you know, that the, the nature of reality is impermanent or, or the impermanent uh, fleeting nature of the phenomena of the world. Nothing lasts forever. Everything is in a constant flux, constant change. And of course, you know, it was very, you know, generally quite easy to comprehend this. But uh, in this chapter here, Shinzen writes about the many faces of impermanence. And he speaks here, and I'll just read a direct quote. He says, the great Burmese master, Uba Ken, had an interesting and useful way of talking about impermanence, which I'm sure was never used in earlier Buddhism. He spoke of activating impermanence. At some point, you may experience impermanence as a kind of energy that has been activated within you and helps you along with the meditation. It is a kind of impermanence you can ride and surf. In Hindu meditation, this is sometimes called kundalini or shakti. So as far as I know, throughout this entire book, that's Shinzen's only mention of, of Kundalini. I'm sure he's mentioned it elsewhere in his work. But that description there, 
of kundalini as impermanence as a flow as a flow as a flowing energy really spoke to me and it collapsed the two seemingly separate distinctions of kundalini shakti and this buddhist idea of impermanence and suddenly i recognized that this force that we may now call impermanence is not separate from kundalini and kundalini of course as we know it's flow it's energy flowing it's the feminine it's the dynamic feminine expression of consciousness which is constantly in flux constantly dancing changing moving um, arising and passing uh, just as we see out in nature mother nature is never still everything is always moving in flux just as i mentioned you know when we look inside with mindfulness meditation we see that there's constantly movement happening. The breath is happening. The breathing is happening. Um, constantly little itches are coming up, little pains, little pressures. Uh, things are being released. Tension is being released. So there's a constant ongoing flow. And so in reading this from Shinzen, it opens something up in me where I recognize, like I'm saying, you know, I could view this Kundalini force not solely as this energetic, flashy uh, sort of uh, intelligence that moves through my body as a result of my spiritual practice or whatever, I could look at it in a more general and overarching sense simply as the impermanence that we see pervading all of life internally, externally, in another person, in nature, in the cosmos, everywhere. And so this opened up this this um, understanding of, of, of the Divine Mother, of Shakti, of Kundalini to me. And of course, I began to sit with this and sit in meditation and really tune in and allow this Kundalini, this impermanence, this flow to move through me or not even to allow it, to recognize that it's always been flowing um, and it cannot stop flowing and just to become aware of it in a very, very uh, acute and sharp manner. Prior to this, I may have personified Kundalini as being more the uh, flashy things or the feeling it move through my spine or feeling it move in my chakras or feeling it um, breathing me. But now it became a little bit more subtle down to the, uh, the almost a cellular level feeling an itch. And then, you know, maybe if I felt an itch, I could notice when the itch arises and then note when it passes away and note its impermanence and recognize that, ah, this too is Kundalini. Kundalini isn't, isn't just the Divine Mother that brings us these flashy, you know, uh, exciting experiences. It's also the Divine Mother that brings us itch and the relief of an itch, for example. So, I get I'm rambling here. I'm, I'm honestly still processing this realization. It's, it's, it's rather profound for me. Um, and so I began to sit with this and really tuning into it and feeling it, feeling the flow. And Shinzen, part of his teaching, he has this concept of flow. Um, you know, we note the uh, contraction and expansion and, and the flow between these two uh, extremes. And um, we can tap into this. And so I first noticed this after a meditation session. I went for a drive at night and suddenly I, I just tuned in and, and I could see the flow in the way that the lights of cars on the streets and the reflections and how beautiful it all was just flowing in and out and something so mundane as a driver turning on their turn signal just watching it 
come on and off, on and off, became this very profound experience. And I recognize that too is Kundalini. That too is the energetic flow of impermanence, the arising and the passing away of light, of sounds. And I was able to almost tune into the flow, into the so, almost like slow motion, where I can note not just that somebody's blinker of their car is going on and off, but I can notice that it's in slow motion. If you were to look at a blinker on a car, you'd see that it's it gradually goes from being off to on to fully bright and then gradually fades back to being off. And I was able to note the the gradient nature of, of the light turning on and off, flashing on and off pulsing almost even though it's happening very quickly and of course that applies more to the uh i guess the older halogen style lights some of the leds are a little bit more instant um i'm sure if you could slow down even even uh even more you can note the uh the gradual fading in and out of even an led light uh, if you don't know what i'm speaking about don't worry about it. i'm getting a little nerdy there but um i was noting this and even noting the sounds you know, car would honk and and it's not just like it's instantly at full volume it's actually it fades into full volume and then it fades out and i was able to note these things and also note similarly the phenomena within my own body and emotion would creep up suddenly well not even suddenly but gradually if you're able to tune in enough an emotion creeps up and then an emotion fades away thoughts arise and then they fade away and this is all kundalini this is all impermanence it's all shakti it's all the flow and so i was able to you know, really feel this, really, really feel this driving and driving became very exciting and it, and it still is. Um, listening to music, hearing the notes fade in and fade out, the flow, just really moving into this. Well, over time, I began to really contemplate the impermanent nature of everything. And looking at the road, I thought, you know, this road is quite still, right? This is how we make perceive a road to be still it's rock solid right but then i thought even the road is is constantly in flow you know um um the paint on the road the the lane dividers this is constantly being uh you know fading um little pebbles are coming off the road and 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 rocks and it's probably dipping in certain areas and potholes and i thought even though this is happening very slowly you know maybe you know we can't notice it just by looking at it in the moment but over six months, you may notice the road changes. And I thought, okay, even the road is part of the flow. And, and, and suddenly everything that I may have once perceived to be still a building, uh, you know, a steel rebar, all of this, I, I started to feel the, the movement in it, the shakti in it, the impermanence in it. And suddenly Kundalini went from being this force within my own body, this force within nature. You know, if you look out in the sky, I could see, okay, this is all the divine mother nature. Suddenly, it became even there in more mundane things, in electronics, in, in uh, you know, like I'm saying, buildings, metal even, all of these sort of manufactured things also became radiant with this flow, with this kundalini. And so, in my notes, I keep a journal, a sadhana journal. I wrote down here, if you slow down enough, you can perceive a tree growing, a mountain eroding the same flow moves through you too. And so that captures a little bit of what I'm trying to share here. There's an interesting experiment. Um, it may be the longest running experiment of all time. I may be wrong about that. But essentially, a scientist took a very seemingly solid piece of 
um, tar. And he set it up in a sort of funnel. He put it in the funnel. And his hypothesis was that this seemingly solid piece of tar is actually a liquid. And it's just so thick, like molasses, but even more and more thick, that it just takes way longer to uh, to flow in the way that a liquid does. So he set up this funnel type thing, put the, the tar there, and after about 10 years, this tar slowly dripped and a droplet came off of it. And 10 years, 20 years, something like that, like years. And uh, it's been running for, I think, over 100 years now, this experiment where the tar is just dripping and there's been about, you know, maybe like nine or 10 of these droplets have come over the past 100 years. And you can actually look this up. They have the live stream of this uh, experiment online. Um, you know, I can't, I can't remember what it's called, but I'm sure you could Google it with a few. If you're creative enough, you'll, you know, look up uh, dripping experiment or something. It's quite literally the live stream. And I don't think anybody has ever actually been present to witness the drop because it happens so rarely. But what I'm trying to say here is that even these seemingly solid objects like this experiment was showing, even they have a degree of flow, even they can be considered uh, a liquid in a sense. Now, of course, this is more physics, but you get what I'm trying to point towards here. So anyway. I'm having this sort of uh, major theme unfolding in my practice. I'm continuing to sit to meditate with this um, as often as I can. My meditation practice hasn't been perfectly consistent. I'm working on that, but now I'm very excited about it. So I'm getting more, more, uh, more momentum to sit regularly and just explore these very subtle experiences. Um, so that's what I've been exploring. And then so leading up to this, I've been planning towards uh, a trip uh, to Yosemite in Sequoia in California, ever since I heard about this place as a child, Yosemite, ever since I saw those gigantic sequoia trees, I, I just knew I had to, uh, you know, visit this place one day. And so, of course, uh, I, I planned and, and I made it, um, made it happen with my, my girlfriend and I. We rented uh, a camper van, big camper van, and we drove uh, from Las Vegas into uh, Yosemite. And so this trip was, was very exciting, but I was very sleep deprived. I was very excited. Um, couldn't really get some, some good sleep. Thought I'd sleep on the plane, didn't get any sleep. So we're driving and I'm on about an hour of sleep and forced to be fully present as uh, you know, I'm driving in a different country from Canada, not too different, but different enough. Driving this big, very, uh, clunky u-haul type van for a line very heavy uh not really good at handling you know it's designed for transporting a lot of goods not really for handling these mountain roads up in, in california so i'm fully present driving and, and you know trying not to you know uh you know fall off a cliff and i'm feeling the pressure of the traffic behind me um to, you know pick up the pace but really this this van doesn't really go that fast so anyway, you know, we finally make it into Yosemite and I'm just so tired, but wow, I am just floored at the immensity of the landscape, of the boulders, of these monolithic towering granite structures, of the flow of the river, and I am just stunned. I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm here in this place. And it is like nothing I've ever imagined. I, I, and you know, no description, no picture could really do it justice. Um, so finally, we get to our campsite, 
I was fortunate enough to to snag a, a couple campsites that are they're rather rare to uh, book, but um, you know the the recent hurricane I think spooked a few people and, and so they canceled and I was able to to grab some campsites directly in the park. Uh, anyway, um, in the next morning I got some good sleep. Uh, the night before, the next morning we drove out to uh, Yosemite um, uh, Valley and we went to a lookout called Tunnel View. It's one of the most epic views of Yosemite. And uh, you know, so we're there for sunrise. I set up my camera, taking some, taking some pictures of, uh, of the sunrise uh, in its different stages. And they have a plaque there you know, with some information. And I see this quote. It's a quote by John Muir. And he says, This grand show is eternal. It is always sunrise somewhere. The dew is never all dried at once. A shower is forever falling. Vapor is ever rising. Eternal sunrise, eternal sunset, eternal dawn and gloaming on sea and continents and islands, each in its turn as the round earth rolls. And so I read this and I thought, wow, this is exactly what I've been exploring on my journey thus far at this point, you know, the impermanent, the flow. And when he says here, this grand show is eternal, you know, it is always sunrise somewhere. This, to me, pointed directly towards this experience, this idea of it always constantly being in flux, constantly changing and moving. And this is, of course, Kundalini Shakti. And I thought, wow, I'm in the right place, of course. And I look out at, at you know, Yosemite Valley, and I'm just completely stunned at the immense beauty you know, that, uh, that I'm looking at there, um, just completely stunned. And so I sat down on the ledge. I, I you know, uh, hung my legs over the ledge there and decided to go into a meditation. Of course, in this place, Yosemite, I'm, I'm sitting to meditate. I close my eyes and I turn inwards and I have a thought, you know, what am I doing closing my eyes here? <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in such a beautiful place. So I open my eyes to meditate. And of course, you can meditate with your eyes open. And I'm just, you know, gazing out at the, the valley there. And all of the, the, uh, the monoliths begin to glow. And I see El Capitan, you know, the most famous uh, granite structure there. And it's glowing, this huge aura, this energetic aura around El Capitan. And I see the waterfall on the other side of the valley flowing and half dome in the background. And the sun beginning to creep up over the valley. And I just can't believe it. I'm looking at the face of God the face of the divine mother of mother nature and i begin to have an emotional experience i begin to cry just weep with gratitude that i've somehow found myself at this place um you know 
all that led up to me coming here, gratitude that I survived the, the drive, you know, on, on such little sleep through the mountains and just so grateful that I could be here to, to take in this site. And not only that, but grateful that I had had this recognition of Kundalini as impermanence prior to coming here so that I could sit and really bask in this in such a beautiful place. And to look at, you know, El Capitan and the mountains and the, the, the waterfall and the sun rising and to think, wow, this is, you know, incredible. This is divinity. And I'm weeping and having these experiences, these, these emotional, you know, uh, thoughts. And then there's people around me and, and, uh, and admittedly, I'm a little embarrassed, you know. They're having conversations with their friends, you know, and I'm just there crying audibly. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me to just be vulnerable and to have the experience I'm having. And so I, I just sat with it. I honored the experience and I thought they, they can think what they want. Maybe I will, um, you know, spark their interest into what am I crying about? And maybe they'll, you know, feel some of the whatever I'm feeling. I don't know, but uh, I just let it flow. I let the tears flow. It was really, really a beautiful moment in my life. And... I recognized, of course, you know, this is what John Muir's talking about. This is what Shinzen is talking about. This is the flow. This is Kundalini as impermanence. And so my time in Yosemite is just incredible. Um, you know, with my girlfriend and I, we really uh, enjoyed it, roamed around, uh, took some pictures. Um, I did some some night photography as well. I photographed the, uh, the Milky Way, our, our camper van, and El Capitan. Um, this was at about 3 a.m. Uh, I woke up, uh, drove the van out from our campsite uh, right in front of El Capitan there. And um, you know, had great conditions for the Milky Way. It was really an awesome time. Um, I lit up the van with, uh, with my flashlight from outside, doing a little bit of light painting. Uh, the fairy lights lit it up from inside. So that was fun. Uh, Photography is my, my outlet uh, for creativity, one of them. And so... Overall, I can say, you know, if you want to feel small, Yosemite is, is a place to go to feel small. And in my sadhana journal, I wrote, in your mind, you cannot know how big a mountain is. In your heart, you can only feel small beneath it. And so this is the second trip that I've uh, looked at the mountains. I had a trip earlier a few years ago where I went to Banff, another incredible place. And I, had, you know, first had the opportunity to look at a mountain and I just couldn't believe my eyes. If there's any face of God, I think it would be in a mountain. Of course, we see the face of God in everything, of course. But I mean, you look at a mountain, something about it just just brings me to a state of awe. You know, it's right there in your face. And yet, at least for me, I cannot wrap my mind around how large they can be. You know, it's right there and yet I still can't grok it. I can't comprehend its immensity. It's like looking out at the stars and trying to comprehend, you know, how many there are, how far they are. It's like looking at a mountain is like that for me. It just, it almost seems like it's not real. And um, it's, it's a very humbling experience. And uh, this, this, this came to me, you know, I, I can't understand how it is, how big it is in my mind. I can only feel small beneath it in my heart. 
And so in, in Shinzen's book here, The Science of Enlightenment, highly recommend it. I'm going to try and get Shinzen on the show uh, for an interview in which we can talk about his journey and, and uh, some of the writings that he's put out and talk about Kundalini and talk about Kundalini as impermanence. I'd love to, to get him to, to dive deeper into this um, because, of course, I'm just sharing my, my own reflections on this. Um, very fresh, very fresh, only a few months old, these reflections. That's why I'm feeling a little scattered. But I thank you for, for you know, still spending time with me today. Um, so in, in The Science of Enlightenment, he speaks about uh, this interesting idea of mountains dancing. And I think there's another idea where they speak about, um, you know, you can recognize that even a stone statue of the Buddha is dancing. And what they're alluding to, what they're pointing to here is if you're able to tune in with mindfulness, with presence, you can tune into the flow and you can recognize that even a mountain is dancing. Even a, even a stone statue is dancing. It's not still. It's impermanent. It's flowing. The energy of Shakti is flowing through all of these things. And you know, when you look up at a mountain, you, know, you may feel that a mountain is still. It's permanent. You know, you have this idea that, you know, the greatest force can move mountains because, of course, nothing can move a mountain, and so they use that as a as a way of describing something very someone someone or a force very powerful it can move mountains. Um, and so, of course, in spirituality, we have these concepts of, of of stillness, of calmness, of peacefulness, of silence, right? This immove immovable, unshakable stillness, right? Shiva in Hinduism pure being, etc. So there's a lot of emphasis on stillness. And, and for much of my journey, there's been great reverence and feeling that stillness and becoming quiet and calm and, and present. And, and um, you know, a mountain is a great example of that. But suddenly I recognize that a mountain isn't still at all. A mountain is constantly flowing. It's just like a river, constantly eroding. You know, maybe there's trees growing on it. There's snow melting. There's this constant flux there in a mountain, and it is absolutely dancing. Even a statue of the Buddha, in time it will crumble. And it is crumbling. If you look at it, even in this moment, a stone statue is crumbling. It's very slowly, just like that experiment of the tar dripping very slowly. And so with this insight, I was able to recognize that, you know, like some of the... Um, the Buddhists, uh, the Zen folk will talk about, yes, even the, the stone statue of the Buddha is, is dancing. Even um, the mountain is dancing. And so this is an invitation. If, if you're one who has been inclined towards stillness, as I have been, nothing wrong with stillness. It's very important. But look at the, the, the other side of, of stillness. It's all movement. Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. Uh, that's taken from you know, the, the Vedic tradition. Shiva, the masculine, still, present. And there's Shakti, the divine feminine, the dancer, the mover, right? And so we can see that the, the duality of the two collapses in on itself if we contemplate these things. Another interesting insight came to me during this moment where I was looking at the valley there in this open-eyed meditation. I looked out at, at El Capitan, which is, you know, it's this huge granite monolith, flat, flat rock face, very popular for climbing. There's a great uh, documentary called Free Solo where um, this guy, forgotten his name, but he climbs it without any, 
any gear, just no ropes, nothing, just free climbs it. And it is absolutely incredible. Definitely check out that documentary if you're, if you're interested in contemplating, uh, you know, the, the immensity of Yosemite and you want to see um, some really incredible uh, feats of athleticism. As well, interestingly, they actually put this guy through an MRI and they look at his brain and it seems like he's got uh, a bit of an inactive amygdala, which um, I guess they attribute to why he doesn't really get afraid of what he's doing. Uh, I think that's what they were trying to get at with that um, segment in the film. But that reminded me of, you know, meditation, right? You become mindfulness, not to deactivate your amygdala, but to become emotionally um, um, resilient, aware, mindful. So we can maybe, you know, climb mountains. I don't think, um, no matter how deeply I meditate, I don't think I'll ever, you know, climb uh, El Capitan. But um, anyway, check out that documentary free solo really well filmed as well so uh i'm looking out at el capitan and like i said it's glowing and there's an aura around el capitan and i have this insight el capitan has an ego it has its separate identity it's a self an ego self how offensive would it be for me to look out at this this protruding monolith and say, oh, that's one with everything. It's all one with everything. There's no such thing as El Capitan, the mountain, the monolith. It's all just Mother Nature, one with everything. It's all one thing. How offensive would it be to El Capitan? You know, looking at that, you can only look at something so huge and recognize its individuality, its uniqueness, its separateness, amongst the entire landscape so within spirituality we have this emphasis of course on oneness we are all one everything is one non-duality all there is is the one universe one source one self uh, we're all interconnected and yes of course it's true it's true from the fundamental absolute level it's absolutely true everything is one everything is interconnected el capitan is one with the landscape of course but like I'm saying, it felt like blasphemy in, in the experience I was having to look at El Capitan and reduce it to just being a, a one landscape. And then I felt this applies to myself as well, as Brent. There are some teachings from non-duality, Neo-Advaita, Buddhism that speak of no self, right? Not separate. There's no individual ego here. It's not actually a real thing. It's empty. It's empty of, uh, of, of something that we can really refer to as tangible. And to say, yes, this is me, right? A core, a separate sense of self that's at, at my core. But then I thought, wow, you know, just like El Capitan, I'm also an individual here. And I need to honor my individuality and embody that as Brent, the human being that appears to be separate in the world. Then I looked around at others and I said, of course, they're all separate people here. Of course. And I looked around at the other tourists, other travelers. Of course, these are all unique individuals having a unique experience here. Just like El Capitan is having a unique experience of itself as the apparently separate monolith. And so this brought me into a, a deeper 
sort of sense of this understanding that, yes, we are all one, but of course we all are separate and we want to honor that. Um, and this is themes that run through my work. You know, I've, I've, I've done my best never to negate the, the sanctity of the individual, the, uh, the sacredness of the individual. But seeing something like El Capitan, I had this insight, you know, how dare anybody reduce anything to just, uh, it's all one. How dare anybody? We are all separate here, experiencing the world through our own unique perspectives and lenses. Our bodies are our own. Our thoughts are our own. Our experiences, our memories, our past, our future, our goals, our relationships, all valid here. And I think that this is the paradox of the spiritual journey is to recognize oneness and then embody it as the separateness that we are, right? And so I hope that makes some sense. I know these are rather nuanced topics and maybe I haven't expressed them too clearly. I'm just riffing off the top here. Um, maybe in, in the future, I'll we'll more deeply refine these ideas and present them a little bit more clearly. But um, you're getting it fresh. You're getting it fresh today. So that was one insight I had about uh, the difference between separation and oneness. El Capitan taught me that. Really profound. I also learned that uh, in Sequoia, Sequoia National Park, Sequoia trees, a species of trees, they are the largest uh, by volume in the world. <clears throat> Very old as well, but not the oldest, thousands of years old. And um, mind-boggling how large they are. Absolutely incredible. Just like the mountains, you just can't comprehend how large they are. You can only just stand beneath one and feel small. Um the, the interesting thing about these trees is that there are average sized trees that you know you may see around your home or whatever. And then there's sequoias, which are just exponentially bigger. There isn't really anything in between that would make it somewhat easy for you to, uh, you know, understand how sequoia, how big they are. It just goes from average sized trees to just sequoias that are just enormous. And, um, you know, just contemplating them, it's almost like they're so big that I could almost tune in and I could feel the water rising up their trunk. I could perceive like individual veins in the tree, individual parts of the tree as if they were separate components all doing a job within the tree itself. And the tree was actually a conglomeration of many moving parts, not just one solid entity. It was, it was many parts. Um, these are some interesting insights I was having. Um, I sat to meditate against one and I felt uh, a lot of uh, interesting phenomena in my body, um, some energy moving around in my body, very, very calm, grounded. It's just a really magical place. Um, Sequoia National Park. They also have sequoias in Yosemite as well. So um, really just profound, profound uh, experiences I was having here. And once again, you know, I looked at these gigantic sequoia trees and I thought, yeah, everything is one. It's all interconnected. But of course, we have to we have to honor the 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 apparent uniqueness, individuality and separateness of some of these trees because they're just so enormous and um, imposing and wise you know i was contemplating some of the things that these trees must have seen some of them are i think you know older than uh 
over 3,000 years old, you know, just, just contemplating the, uh, the seasons and the amount of flow, the amount of kundalini, the amount of impermanence that these trees have experienced is just incomprehensible. So <clears throat> I discovered John Muir, the writings of John Muir on that plaque uh, looking out at the valley. And I began to, you know, look into, you know, who is this guy? I mean, I've never heard of this John Muir guy. It's actually really interesting. Um, I, I would call him a mystic, um, but he spent a lot of time uh, in nature, of course, and he's actually credited with um, um, pushing for the development of uh, national parks in the United States for uh, conservancy and, and not, uh, you know, obviously not chopping down these trees and whatnot. Um, and so uh, big thanks to John Muir for, uh, for his work. But the writing specifically, his writing is really incredible on nature. If you're looking for spiritual writings on nature, um, written by somebody who I would say is, you know, tapped into some some mystical um, experiences, definitely check out the writings of John Muir. Uh, I've still got to explore them more in deep, deeply myself, but um, I haven't come across any mystical writings that speak about nature in the way that John Muir does. And I've read quite a bit, but you know, something about the way he writes is just really incredible. Um, and very relatable because we can all go out in nature. You know, we don't have to necessarily go to Yosemite or Sequoia or <clears throat> somewhere else like that, you know, these great places. And this was actually part of John Muir's message <clears throat> where you can see the beauty, the same beauty, the same grand show that we may see at Yosemite. You can see it also just looking at a leaf, just contemplating a bush, contemplating a flower. It's all there. <clears throat> now, I'm not crying because I'm emotional. I'm uh, choking up because I uh, need to drink some water. Um, and so John Muir's writings really close the gap between these really profound places like Yosemite and the more easily accessible places that we all have. And so now even just sitting at the park across my street, just noticing the way that the, uh, the wind blows through the trees and the leaves just kind of bounce and how that affects the shadow on the ground, the lighting, and just tuning into that and feeling that that same flow of the tree branches bouncing and the light shifting and the wind blowing, that same flow is also what's moving through me, also what's animating my own body, beating my heart, <clears throat> inspiring thoughts. It's that same force that we would call impermanence, Mother Nature, and the divine. And now maybe I am getting a little emotional as well as choking up. But one thing that this, this recent insight has done for me is um, helped me to <clears throat> let go a little bit more of this obvious attachment 
<coughs> this obvious attachment to the Kundalini awakening narrative. And now I'm beginning to understand more and more about why some traditions, like Buddhism, don't explicitly talk about Kundalini in the way that some of the yogis may, or in the way that I'm speaking about it, is because limiting it just to this force within the body that, you know, rises up through the spinal column and, and purifies and activates the chakras and, and this sort of thing, that's too limiting. It's too much of a category, too much of a box. I think this idea of seeing it as impermanence, seeing it as the flow, Kundalini Shakti, is a more profound way of looking at it. And this may serve to further develop a sense of maturity on your path where the distinction between Kundalini process and just life, just life happening, that distinction begins to fall away. And we recognize that it's all just life happening. It's not just, it's not Kundalini awakening anymore. It's just life happening. And so everything now is enveloped in this process. The blinking of a car signal, you know, sun rising, another person speaking, another person complaining, giving you a hard time, sickness, death, all of this is all impermanence, all flow, all Kundalini Shakti. So I thank you for spending some time with me today, hearing my musings and, and contemplations. Let me know what you think about all of this. You can leave a comment below if you have a question about this. Um, I appreciate you out there listening to me. I know that this was a little off the cuff and unrefined, but um, I hope that uh, you get something out of our talk today. You can visit brentspeard.com for more free content just like this. I've got the whole Kundalini Awakening series, over 60 parts now, a bunch of interviews with some really exciting people that have been traveling this journey for a long time. As well, I've got uh, some, some free programs on my website, brentspeard.com. Uh, as well as uh, a premium course, Grounded Spiritual Emergence and Integration. I'm also working on putting together a, a more in-depth course about the Kundalini Awakening process. And uh, some of the ideas that I've shared today will definitely in inform the way that I put it together and present the material. Uh, you can also sign up for my free newsletter. It's called The Spirit Letter. I send out some, some more reflections, musings, and insights uh, for the journey directly to your inbox. <clears throat> You can also uh, visit the Spirit Community, which is uh, my place for you to uh, connect with me and others that are going through this journey. Pose a question, share some uh, of your own reflections, thoughts about your journey as well. You can find me on Instagram, and I'll leave it at that. Everything else is in the description. Thank you so much for your time today. Much love and peace. <laughs>